What's up and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is your host, Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. This podcast is powered by Stick and Ball TV, the baseball and softball streaming platform. If you're listening to this, then I know you want to get better, and Stick and Ball is just for you. With hundreds of videos and updated weekly with some of the greatest softball coaches and baseball coaches in the country, it's a no-brainer. Check it out at stickandball.tv or on the Stick and Ball TV mobile app. This episode is brought to you by What About Baseball? It's no secret that we live in a world with constant electronic distractions. Families are spending less time together and kids often can't look up from their devices. But the What About Baseball brand is here to help. What About Baseball is a family-owned, baseball-centric business whose focus is on providing the best baseball toys, games, and accessories to bring friends and family back together to bond over the great sport of baseball. Starting with their best-selling Classic Edition board game, What About Baseball offers fun and exciting gameplay for fans at all levels, from beginner to expert. And whether you want to teach someone the basics of counting balls and strikes, or you are deciding if you should call the suicide squeeze, What About Baseball's Classic Edition board game is a proven winner and has the reviews to prove it. Even better, it's made right here in the USA. What About Baseball would like to reward Ahead of the Curve listeners 20% off of their best-selling board game and free shipping. Go to whataboutbaseball.com backslash curve to get your special offer. On today's show, we have on Travis Kerber, the Director of Player Development for Elite Baseball Training in Chicago, Illinois. A little background on him. He played at Madison Area Technical College, and his team was ranked number one in the country throughout the entire 1998 season. During the 2000 season, he was named a preseason All-American and continued catching until his senior year where he converted to pitching. Travis also played six years of professional baseball and then worked for 10 years for the Chicago White Sox Academy, with five of those being the academy director. Travis is one of the most sought-after instructors in the Midwest for his ability to teach several facets of baseball at a high level. So on the show, we dive deep into movement prep and assessments. We also spend a ton of time at the end of the show discussing decision training and some of Travis's favorite drills. There's a ton to unpack in this episode, and it's going to take more than one listen to get it all. And here is Travis Kerber. Travis, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me on, Jonathan. Definitely. I listened uh, to your podcast and followed, you know, you and Justin Stone for a while. And uh, first off, uh, thank you for doing the podcast. I think it's it's something that I've enjoyed every single week that you guys put it out. And a lot of, I think you guys are 10 or 12, 15 episodes deep. And I think I've listened to all of them and really, really good in-depth information. So I definitely want to encourage our listeners to go check those out. And second thing is I know that you guys are running a company together, Elite Baseball Training. And so I would love to hear, and I think this is something that has really come up the last couple of years of how do we assess players properly? Because we've got one constant, which is time, but in essence, we don't have a lot of it with players. And so I think that, you know, us being able to focus on the things that matter is is really paramount. Uh, And so I would love to hear your thoughts on Whenever you have players walk in, what does your assessment process look like? Yeah, I mean, I guess to, to preface that, I think a lot of it, and as us as coaches, you know, we're all probably pretty clear of the amount of time that it takes um, to be able to be prepared to even go into those kind of sessions. Um, so one thing, like behind the scenes to start out with the assessment process um, was essentially 
I don't even know if it was like four years ago at this point that, you know, Justin and I went and got, um, went to a TPI conference um, for movement assessment. And I remember sitting in, in that session and we looked at each other during the break and it was almost like an epiphany moment of, wow, I can't believe that we haven't done this before. You know, we'd, we'd been in baseball for so long and we, you know, we we're always trying to stay on top of things and learn together, learn from other people try to advance. Um, and we got into movement assessments. And then obviously from there, we started getting into technology. Um, we would go to baseball. We always joke, we go to baseball conferences and meet up with the golf people because um, the golf industry was ahead of us in terms of technology and in terms of force plates and 3D sensors and uh, club sensors and stuff like that. And so it started there. But then like the behind the scenes stuff, like before the kids even come in is is the hours spent testing different things. So what I mean by that is like, even if we are going to do movement prep stuff, which we'll get into in a little bit, um, before we do it, we test out the movement prep. We'll test it with our technology. We'll, we'll go over it with our S and C people. Um, we test all the drills and implements that we do. So like our actual swing prep stuff, we test out. So we'll, if we're going to work on, let's say, a PVC check swing, we're going to we're going to get ourselves on a force plate. We're going to put our 3D sensors on. We're going to get um, a blast connected to the end of the PVC. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to check everything the best we can. And if we see correlations that fit, then we're going to test out other people. And if those correlations still fit, then we're going to continue on with that process of testing more people um, just to verify that we're we're moving the thing the right way in a way that's going to help people as opposed to just, Hey, this looks like a cool thing to do. Let's just do this for fun. And like, this seems to help this guy. So hopefully it'll help most people. We know that everything isn't going to help everyone, but that's the background stuff of, you know, as we then have kids come in, you know, we've spent time working through different things and different correctives and trying to test them to the best of our ability and, you know, bouncing those ideas off of other people that, you know, we know in the community as well, um, the baseball community as well, that, you know, we're trying to give the best we can in the moment to the kids we have. So I guess that it starts then what our assessment process would essentially be. Um, so when people first come in, you know, whether they're coming in for the first time, they're local to us and they're just new or whether, you know, we get um, quite a few people that will fly in um, because they've heard of, you know, what we've done or, um, the assessment process we've done, or they've run into some that we've worked with before. So we'll get people that'll come in and they want an assessment using technology and movement assessment um, to create a plan for them that they can then try to execute, honestly, primarily on their own. Uh, but then they have feel like they have a game plan. So that that assessment process obviously starts with kind of like an interview. So anytime people come in, the first thing that we're going to try to do is we're going to try to get to understand where they are from their mindset, um, psychologically, you know, are they feeling like they're beat up as a player? Is that why they're coming in? Because, you know, mentally they're, they're not in a good spot because they're not striking the ball. Well, um, is it a confidence issue? Have they had, uh, injury issues that are leading to their, their, their body not being able to feel like they could do what it could do before? Um, is it something that they feel like they're just inefficient and they've always been inefficient? Um, so we'll start there typically is like, you know, why are you here? You know, what do you feel like you need from us? Um, tell us a little bit about your influences. You know, what's influenced you 
um, to be who you are as of this point? Is it, you know, something you've seen online? Has it been, you know, your parents that have been kind of your, your guiding force as a coach? Has it been an instructor? Has it been, you know, whatever it is, some things I've read, just experimenting, just so you kind of have an idea of like where are they coming from? Like what, what is this person's background um, into who they have become and what they're trying to be? Um, next from there, we we'll typically go to, you know, results. So what, what are you seeing in your results currently? Um, and usually when we ask that question, the funniest thing is I always say this is, is whenever I ask, you know, what have they been seeing? What have they been feeling as it goes to like in game, everybody typically goes to immediately what they feel like they're like, let's say we're talking about swing, what their swing flaw is. It's like, what's my swing flaw? Oh, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm long in my swing or I feel like I'm not using my lower half. And, you know, I think the biggest thing for them is first understanding what is the result that is occurring first? Like, are you rolling over the ball? Do you feel like you're late? Do you feel like you're early? Are you feeling like you're unbalanced? Do you feel like you don't have barrel control? Like where, what is the actual result based feel that is causing you to have the, to, to have, or what the actual issue is, and then try to rewind from there and go back to find out more like, okay, then let's try to identify what could be causing that. Is it, is it psychological at this point? Is it physical? Um, and then trying to identify from there. Uh, and that takes in, takes into then going into strengths and weaknesses. So I always ask for strengths first because everybody wants to immediately come in and think that it's always just diagnosing weaknesses. Like what's wrong with you? How can we fix that? So I always start out with strengths when we go into that. I'm like, okay, what have your strengths been so far? And, you know, whatever that they'll give, whatever, whatever it is for them personally. Um, it might be, you know, I've, I've been pretty good at getting to the baseball. So I'm not swinging and missing a lot. I'm getting a lot of balls going in play. And maybe it's just, I don't have, I don't have the kind of <clears throat> power that I feel like I need, or I'm not, I'm not hitting the ball hard enough to get it through the infield consistently enough. Or it might be, you know, I'm, I'm taking a lot of balls. I just, I, I feel like everything is far away and they're calling it for strikes. And I'm just having a really hard time diagnosing and feeling comfortable where my acknowledgement of where the strike zone is on the far, far part of the plate. It might be, I'm hitting fastballs. Okay. And I'm not hitting breaking balls. So to be whatever their, you know, their movement is, but the first thing is strengths. And then, you know, usually for them, it's going to be most guys. It's like, you know, I feel like my timing's good. And honestly, like, I feel like timing is, is a, is a, is a big thing as it goes into assessment, especially as a hitter, because I feel like most people's timing and when they're advancing is actually pretty good. And most people's timing to impact is what's not good and what makes them feel late. So we go through the strengths and weaknesses. Um, again, just getting to better know them and, and hopefully having a better idea of like, even without working with them right away, what their learning kind of style is, because everybody learns differently. Um, and being able to then be able to start to build the bridge of like, how am I going to interact with this player based on how is he interacting with me? Um, is he demonstrating a lot with his hands? So if he's explaining a lot with, with like moving and showing how he's moving, um, you can learn learning stuff from that. Are they using okay. a lot of descriptive words to explain what's going on? Or are they being very general? Um, that's a good way to tell how somebody, how somebody's going to learn. Um, and then getting to know them kind of that way a little bit in the interview process. Um, then we typically go to what are your goals and aspirations? Like, what are you trying to achieve? Like, are you, are you trying to increase certain parts of your game in a certain way? Are you looking for, you know, 
better on base percentage, better barrel awareness, better zone awareness, um, better decision making, whatever ends up becoming. Um, and then from there we go into previous injury. Um, so previous injury essentially starts what our actual screen would be, like our movement assessment. Um, and the first thing we're going to start with is going to be previous injury. Uh, previous injury tells a lot. Honestly, when people come in and they're like, yeah, I, I rolled my ankle, you know, six months ago, but it's better now. And, you know, a lot of times I'll probe a little bit, you know, did you do, did you do rehab? Did you do some sort of recovery program for it? Um, or did you just kind of wait till you felt like you could put weight on it and move again? And, you know, that already goes into, you can almost already start telling when people started having rolled ankles or, you know, torn ligaments and stuff like that, like almost how movement, pro movement profiles already start to set up, like squat patterns change because of, you know, ankle dorsiflexion, um, range of motion. And, and I'm an example of that. And so getting to know them a little bit through what their previous injury history is, um, and then even being able to eventually after the assessment, be able to tie back in, okay, this is why I saw this in the assessment, in the movement assessment, um, more than likely based off this injury that they've had, um, occurring before. Um, so movement screen is kind of like a combination of like the TPI on base kind of movement screen with, uh, a few additional movement screens that we have added in on our own based off of what we feel is also relevant outside of what the on base or TPI uh, screening would be. Um, so what we're looking for is quality of movement, range of motion, strength, stability. Um, and we're going to go through all that in our movement assessment. Um, from there, then we do that, we do that cold. So we're going to do that without them being prepared. So we're going to see basically how does their body work if they were just walking in off of, or getting out of a vehicle, coming to a field, or coming to a cage, like how does your body work before you actually get it prepped to move? Um, then we're going to let them get loose. And at this point, we're not coaching. We're not doing anything. Um, even in the movement, even in the movement screen at first, like I'm really not going to tell them like what, what and why of the screen completely. Um, I like to do that a little bit later. That way they're not trying to cheat screens because they feel like they're failing screens or, you know, trying to give me something that's not a true movement of what they are because they are trying to like, pass the screen. Uh, but then we go into letting them get loose. So it's, you know, we give them their time. We're not going to, you know, prep them in a certain way. We're going to have them prep how they would normally prep on their own if they hadn't come in. Um, and then we've got, let's say we've got a hitter in, um, we're going to let them get some swings in, get themselves prepped. And then we're going to test them, test their swing, essentially, uh, testing the swing. Essentially, we're going to put them on a force plate. Um, so we've got Vertec force plates, uh, which is a dual plated system that gives us uh, pressure. So we get pressure uh, where, where foot pressure is on the back plate. Uh, we also get horizontal, vertical, and torque pressure, our force on both plates, so the front and the back independently. Um, we have them using K motion, which is our 3D motion capture um, on the joints of the um, four joints of the body or four, four positions on the body. And then we are going to use blasts uh, for bass for bat metrics, and then we use Rapsodo as well. Uh, we also have uh, EMG to to be able to track some muscle. Um, working into that, that's a harder setup. So we're we're still kind of been in that process for about a year or so at this point of of being able to make that more of a quicker process to be able to do because it's right now very time consuming. So it's been limited as to that as of this moment yet. Um, and then we have them go through a swing. So 
what we're going to do typically in the swing is we're going to do a shorter flip first. Um, and we're going to track and let them barrel like three, four balls where they feel like they're moving the way they want to move or what they feel like their, their, their best movement p- pattern is. Um, obviously recording those, then we're going to go and we're going to speed it up and we're going to go into more of like an overspeed throw. Um, so we're getting more realistic to game and how is then the body changing to adapt to more of a game speed, um, throw. So that'll be the secondary screening for those tests for that. Um, then we're, so as we're capturing that data, then after we get the swing data done, typically we're going to do, um, some sort of like med ball throw. So later on to be able to track the difference between like a swing and let's say, what their actual rate of force production is or their actual amount of force produced in the ground or their, their rotary speeds or the deceleration of certain segments of the body. Uh, we'll do, we'll do almost like a control test with a med ball throw as well. Um, we're going to do a scoop toss from a hitting position. Um, I'll also do an overhead throw from, from that as well. Um, just to track a little bit more independent of, of vertical force being from more back to front versus side to side. Um, and then we'll typically do a jump test as well, depending on the amount of time that we have, because obviously t- time isn't endless when we're in the cage, so we can't we can't do everything every time. Um, we'll do a jump test. We'll do bilateral jumps. We're using both legs. We'll do unilateral jumps. Um, we'll do counter movement jumps, and then we'll just do like a set movement, so basically from a bottom up without a negative move. Um, and that really kind of takes us then through the assessment portion of it. Um, so after that, you know, we're typically at that point going to be outside of the time frame we have for that session because that's usually a good uh, hour session to be able to get all that stuff in uh, between the interview, the movement assessment, the swing assessment. And then that goes into then setting up essentially their their own individual movement prep and their own individual swing prep. So movement prep is based off of what we've seen in the movement screen and in previous injury history. So whether it is and, and most of the time it's obviously it's well, maybe not obvious. Most of the time it's some sort of pelvic work. Um, I think the pelvis is a huge, huge indicator as to how a player is going to move because the pelvis being able to keep um, stable, controlled and being able to disassociate essentially is going to be a huge part of whether the upper body can work well in the swing. Um, once we lose control or stability of the pelvis, everything kind of breaks down from there. Um so usually, you know, we're, we're going to look and say, okay, are, is this athlete being able to create anterior and posterior tilt uh, of the pelvis? Are they being able to create disassociation? Uh, what was the quality of that movement? Um, and you're nitpicking every detail because as, as we see it in assessment, even if somebody's pretty good at the movement, that means there's still room for growth. So in that, you know, we're going to nitpick and not just be like, okay, that was good enough. Let's just leave it alone. Um, and then we write up the movement assessment based off of that. Um, and we've got, um, uh, movement assessment wise. So we've got everything from hinge work. Um, so if, if people are lacking in their hinges, um, to, um, disassociation work to pelvic tilt work to thoracic work to shoulder. So we got internal external work. Um, and there's, there's much more obviously that goes beyond that, but, you know, we've got different, whether it's, you know, a lot of athletes for a lot of athletes have exceedingly weak hamstrings. Um, and I think that's one of those things like most, most athletes aren't consciously always working their hamstrings. So we, we tend to get guys that, you know, a lot of people that have like tight hamstrings, they don't realize, you know, that it's not just always about stretching out that hamstring. A lot of times it's just a weakness in the hamstring. So we've got 
all that kind of stuff that'll go into their movement prep. And their movement prep is something that they're responsible for then every day. Um, and in particular, every day before they're going to go to battle. So before they're going to go hit or before they're going to go throw. And then we set together their swing prep. So swing prep is going to be based off of all the tech stuff we've done. So swing prep would be whether it's rate of force production. So this athlete might produce a lot of force, but it takes them a long time to get to that force, which basically makes a lot of that strength useless um, in regards to what we're trying to do in baseball, which is a very short burst movement. Um, so whether it's rate of force work, whether it's, um, deceleration work. So the body's having a hard time decelerating, which a lot of times just means that it takes more time to get up to full speed, um, which makes it harder, obviously, as the game gets faster, um, to be able to manage, managing a faster throw, which then leads to obviously making decisions sooner, which typically leads to making poor decisions. The sooner we have to make that decision. Um, so that takes us into all that kind of stuff. Um, we've got you know, stuff based off of time to impact, uh, based off rotational acceleration. Um, and then obviously from ball spin and stuff like that. So we're from off our wraps out of, you know, whether we're at high spin rate or low spin rate or side spin. Um, and then obviously the directionality of the, of the hit and the arc of the bat, and that'll all be part of their swing prep stuff. So that typically leads then to us then having a secondary meeting with the athlete to kind of go through this plan with them. Um, and then typically, as we go through the plan, I'm not making changes at this point to a swing. Um, we're just talking about with the athlete, what we found out through the testing. Um, typically then it's going to become, okay, let's go back to that like more game-like environment. So we're going to jump back in the cage after we do our prep for that day. And it's going to be, okay, before I start tinkering with maybe or maybe not what might be wrong with your swing, let's go and let's put you in a higher stress environment and let's see how you react. So it's going to be, you know, get yourself loose again for essentially after we get through our swing prep stuff, if you need something else that you feel like you need to do, and then it's going to be backing up and usually it's going to go live arm. So I try to keep myself in relatively good throwing shape. Uh, so I can, I can throw to them in that fashion. Uh, so in that, in that, what I'm doing then is I'm going to go back and I'm going to throw fastballs. And if they're barreling the ball, so let's say if I'm going, probably pretty close to 90% of their, of their game speed to start with. If they're barreling the ball decently well, I'm going to go faster. So I'm going to go and find out what their breaking point is. Um, so for a lot of people, a lot of people, it's under, under what game speed should be. Some guys that's at game speed. Some guys can manage above game speed to a pretty decent degree. Um, but again, I'm going to go and try to get them to the breaking point to the point where they're getting to a lower percentage of barrels so we can see what is breaking down as the speed changes. Um, and then it's going to be into secondary. Um, so at first I'm going to let them know I'm throwing them, um, let's say change-ups or breaking balls. And we're going from curveball to slider, obviously to change up. Uh, sometimes I'll mix in some split depending on what age they're at, what they're kind of seeing. Um, and then kind of, again, assess that way. Uh, how are we handling these pitches? And then we'll go into a mixed round where it's going to be, all right, now you don't know what's coming. This is more of a live a game at bat. How are you reacting to these pitches? What is what is kind of your your swing decision process? Like, are you swinging at balls that you most likely should be swinging at? Are you letting balls go that you should be letting go? Um, how are you being able to interact with those? Does it look like you're defensive? Does it look offensive? Do you look in control? Do you look out of control? What is your barrel percentage? Um, and then we'll typically start to go back and start to look at a little bit more video of the swing and start talking about, hey, how did you feel here? 
when the speed got faster? How did you feel when you had a breaking ball around? How did you feel when you didn't know what was coming? Um, what did your what did your heart rate feel like? What did your or the pressure change feel like? How did your timing feel like it was you know going? Um, I think one of the hardest things in the assessment process is to not ask leading questions because I feel like as coaches we tend to have a slightly preconceived notion of what we're looking for or what we're doing. And it tends to lead us into asking directed questions. We're almost leading them down a path to give us an answer somewhat in the mindset of what we're kind of anticipating. So I think, you know, trying to lead, trying to ask non-leading questions and leave them open and let them respond and then react with maybe a follow-up question that again is not trying to direct them in a way. Um, so that essentially leads us through what our assessment, the, the big picture of what our assessment process is. And then it just, it repeats, you know, every time they come in after the point, it becomes, you know, how did this week go for you? How did you feel? You know, what do you feel like has been going well for you this week? What do you feel like you're still struggling with? Anything else that now comes to mind that's happened in this last week that was different from the conversation we had last time we hit, how has your in-game hitting been if we're in season or how has your practice work been going on your own out of season? So essentially that is the nuts and bolts of the assessment process without making this an hour conversation of <laughs> assessment process. No, all good. I, I knew that I wanted to put that up front just because I know that that's really the base of everything that you guys are doing as far as, as what I'm familiar with, with what you guys are doing anyways. And so Let's uh, let's uh, curtail to the audience a little bit. I think most of our listeners are team coaches, whether that's pro ball, college, high school, amateur. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how amateur coaches can do something similar. Like they're, they may not be on base U certified or whatever certification that, you know, biomechanics, whatever it is, but how can they, and is it, is it smart to be able to try and bucket some of those guys and different movement profiles of, Hey, this guy needs more T-spine work than this guy, or this guy's more of a loose mover in the middle than this guy, or this guy needs more uh, disassociation or pelvic tilt than this guy. Or I, I'd love to, to spitball with you just because I know this fall, we're going to have almost 60 kids with three or maybe four coaches, which is not going to heed to a lot of individual time. But if we can set up an environment that allows them to get what they need, then they're still going to have that opportunity to get individualized instruction. It may not be one on one, but they're getting what they need to be better. And so uh, teaching it on the front end is, is going to be a huge thing for me. So I'd love to hear and, and have some advice from you in regards to that. Yeah, um, I would start with this, honestly, for the coaches out there um, that are going through this and trying to trying to delve into this you know, a little bit more than maybe they have or trying to learn more about it than they already have already picked up is honestly like the, the, in my mind for as much as we see like things out there that, you know, you get people arguing, you know, over silly things in my mind on social media and stuff like that is the baseball community is a really great community. And it we've I, and the reason I say that is we've had an open door policy since day one in our facility. Uh, meaning that anybody can stop in any day. They can come in and just sit and observe uh, the process we go through. They're more than welcome to contact us and say, hey, man, I want to be in town. We're going to swing through. Do you mind if we swing through your facility? We just want to see kind of take us. Can you can you give us a little bit of your time and take us through a movement assessment? Can you take us through your tech and kind of show us like what you're seeing here and how you translate that into what you're doing? 
Um, and I know there's a lot of people around the country that are the same as us, that they're very great human beings that are just trying to continue to grow our game and grow themselves and help grow for the kids that we're trying to help enjoy the game we have is go find, go find places that have had the opportunity. Like, you know, I'm fortunate enough that this is all I do. Like I, I don't have a, (laughs) I get people all the time. Like, you know, what else do you do? I'm like, this is my job. And I've been very fortunate that, you know, we've had some success where I've had the ability to, be in front of technology and be in front of a lot of great and incredibly smart people um, to continue my growth to get where I have. And, you know, we have an open door policy and I know a lot of other people would, if you would reach out to, to facilities near you or to people near you that have uh, information that maybe you, you just want to hear what they have to say. So one, you know, go seek that out. And if you guys are ever in Chicagoland area, by all means, come see us. Um, give me a shout. Let me know you're going to be in town. I have no problem coming in and, and walking you through our process. Um, so as it goes for the rest of it, honestly, like if, if, and let's, let's make this part understood to the, to the listeners and the coaches out there too. I, I don't like to coach teams personally because it is exceedingly hard in my mind to do what you guys do as team coaches and that's having a bunch of kids and limited time to get a bunch of stuff done. Like not just trying to help these kids get better, but teaching them the game the right way, setting up, you know, defenses and, you know, everything that you have to do through the course of a practice in a short time frame, especially for high school coaches where you're getting your kids for a very limited time of practice before the season kicks off and trying to get everybody on page with team philosophy and all that kind of stuff. My recommendation would be set set the first two days, three days and run everybody through, you know, some sort of, even if it's a smaller screening process, um, just to get small things that you can look into. Um, and even if it's then just a small swing process where, Hey, we're going to have every swing and we're just, we're not going to say anything to these guys. We're just going to get the swings in, we're going to record the swings. Then you as a coaching staff are going to have some sort of philosophies you have on hitting um, and then being able to just kind of sit down in your time. That's where as a coach, you know, we're giving a lot of free time. I mean, I don't think a lot of people see that when you're players that you don't see that your coaches are sitting at home doing more research, spending time writing up, you know, like when I sit and write down movement, movement um, prep and swing prep, like I'm, I'm on my free time doing that stuff for my athlete. Not that I'm like, Hey guys, like look all the extra stuff I'm doing for you. It's, I don't have enough time with them one-on-one to sit and do that stuff during our time that I need them to be able to have that. So I'm going to sit down and do that on my own. So as a coach, if I'm taking videos, you know, that first couple of days of practice of their swings, of their throws, you know, and then handing those out to the the coaches that are, you know, primarily in charge of that, whether it's a throwing coach for the throwing videos or the, the hitting coach for the hitting videos and starting to look at, okay, what errors are we seeing here? You know, what would we like to see in some of these swings? What is, you know, what is this guy's, you know, ball striking capabilities even around what their swing may be? And then starting to write just little plans for them where you say, listen, man, like you don't need this as much in practice. You need this. So when you show up to practice, your practice might look slightly chaotic, meaning like you're going to have, you know, two people that might be over here because they need to work on, you know, pelvic work and you know you might have a couple people over here that need to work on being able to keep connected in 
keep connected in their swing. And you might have a couple of people over here that are simply working on hinges or whatever it ends up being. Um, and again, you don't have to be full in depth. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to, it's easier to see like once you do it a little bit more. So if I watch 25 people squat, it's not hard to kind of pick things apart that you can kind of see where people are going to have breakdowns in a squat, which is going to lead to a lot of how posture works in a swing. So as a coach out there, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look for anybody around me that I can just kind of follow a little bit. Number two, I'm going to probably set aside the first couple of days of practice. I don't care whether we get better as a team during that time. I want to be able to get everybody into almost like an individualized plan that they're going to do inside of my team practice and that they can also be responsible for when they're not inside my team stuff. And even though I'm giving up a couple of days of practice for that to get that done, like in my mind, that value is going to come back tenfold rather than having what feels like a lot of times a generalized practice because you have a lot of kids and you have 60 kids. Like it's hard. It's hard to sit there and feel like you have time or enough time for each kid to get them what they need to get them where they need to be. As opposed to if you say, here's your, here's your plan, like go run with it. If you need help, I'll be around assisting people that need help. Or if I see things that are jumping out when people are going through their plan, I might just stop and interject. And I'm almost more of just a Rover than I am a coach at that point. Like, I want you guys to be responsible for understanding what you guys need to be better at. Um, honestly, the more you do it, and again, if, if you can be around it, the more you do it, I feel like the easier it gets to see. Meaning like I can, I can at this point, because we've been doing this for long enough at this point, like I'm relatively pretty good at watching the swing. And I can tell you pretty close to what is going to show up on the tech. And I can, I can see data on the tech, meaning like I don't even see a person swing. I can see how they move um, based off just a, a movement screen on a piece of paper and just the information that we're getting spit out from tech. And I can almost tell you what their swing is already going to look like because they, they work hand in hand. And yes, I'm going to be wrong sometimes, which is why we use both to verify. Um, and again, like coaches, a lot of times, you know, you're going to be better So I would say, A, like find somebody around you, B, um, give up a couple days early on and do short assessments. People always ask me like, okay, if we only have a limited time, what, what movement screens are we going to do? Um, for me, it's going to be, it's going to be pelvic tilt. Uh, it's going to be disassociation. It's going to be squat. It's going to be essentially internal and external rotation of the hips um and then thoracic so i want to see thoracic side side bend ability so how much can how much thoracic side bend does an athlete have how much thoracic rotation does a does an athlete have um because that a lot of times is going to lead to if if at all things the lower body is moving decently well can the spine manage the rest of the movement of the way up um so we're, we're going to eliminate a lot of a lot of the stuff if i have to and those would be primarily my go-to um, if I was limited to what I had to do. Um, so that would be probably my thought for coaches to start with is to start with that. And then as it goes to bucketing players, like, you know, typically, you know, one of these things like it's always funny, like Justin and I disagree on probably more things than people realize. I think you just people assume like when you when you're together that that you're kind of like in the same camp all the time. And I think, you know, him and I, I think the reason why we work so good together is that 
a lot of times like, I don't know, man, I don't think that's right. And he'll be like, well, show me, show me why it's not, you know, and he, he's very open to things like that too. And, you know, he'll tell me, he'll tell me that I'm crazy sometimes when I come up with some of the ideas that I want to test and work through. And, and sometimes I'm wrong and sometimes I'm relatively right. Um, but as it goes to that, like, you know, as you're bucketing people, I think one of the things that we've agreed on is that as a hitter, um, a tighter mover, somebody that's got less range of motion, um, tends to have a favorable ability in hitting simply because it takes less time to get from the beginning of the swing to the end of the swing. Um, there's less room for error because of length of swing. So managing a huge range of motion in, in the hips and a huge range of motion in the thoracic and huge, huge scapular retraction capabilities is, is a harder thing to overcome as a hitter. doesn't mean it can't be done. There are guys in the big leagues that are, you know, what would appear because I haven't been able to screen, you know, all the guys in the big leagues, um, but appear to be looser movers that still manage it in the game. Um, so as I'm looking at them, if I'm finding guys that are tighter movers, you know, for them, it's more being able to manage, manage the space they have, meaning that they're going to also run out of space faster. So timing um timing to them becomes very important because if they miss time they don't have additional range of motion to make up for it um spacing becomes really big when you don't have very much uh range of motion um so you know being able to have the disassociation that you need becomes really important when you are a stiff mover to be able to, to allow for space that you're not going to be able to get through length um but in everything there's give and take um you know obviously with throwers I would prefer somebody that's a little bit more of a looser mover simply because that length and range of motion allows for more time to get to full speed as a thrower, which as a pitcher becomes typically more conducive than being a stiff mover and having less time to get to full speed. Um, so we'll, we'll throw them into kind of what their, their profile ends up being based off of that. Um, and then I'll kind of set them up. I would say that the majority of youth guys that you're going to see on a daily basis are going to be more of like neutral to looser movers. Um, and you're going to run into some, some stiffer movers or tighter movers, but I think the majority that, you know, we've seen from um, the amateur side have been more of the neutral to looser. So for them, it's just more of like, okay, based off of that, what are we seeing? You know, if you're a looser mover and you're, rotational acceleration and time to impact is still good, then obviously you're being able to manage at this point kind of more, more what your, your range of motion is. But typically with looser movers, what we're, what we're seeing is that, you know, the hands end up, the hands and arms end up being lagged. So essentially the body starts to turn, but the arms don't go right away. The range of motion is so big that the body gets through a pretty big turn before the hands actually become or try to get connected back into the swing. And that just leads to a, a long swing or, you know, what people would call the racing elbow. Um, so that's kind of how we would start. And, you know, those ones are relatively simple, you know, and guys that have bigger range of motion, you know, easier go-tos would be start with a little bit more of a, a close stride um, just so they can get a feel like what does it feel like if I had less range of motion. So by closing off the stride foot, um, you're essentially being able to eliminate some of that range of motion in the hips. Um, and we can kind of go into that more as we go through some of this other stuff. But like, you know, one of the things that we'll do, you know, drill wise, we'll for guys that are looser movers, especially or lack deceleration, 
in the pelvis or in the uh, torso thoracic would be to do limited turns. So we'll basically say, what is the least amount you need to turn your pelvis to get to what you deem is close to your full speed? So instead of what's the most range of motion you can get to to get to your top top end speed, which might not work in a game, that's more of like a showcase swing. What is the least amount that you need to get to full speed? So we're not limiting it beyond that. It's just what's the least you need to turn to get to to get to what you think is full speed. And we'll do the same thing in the torso. What is the least amount of range of motion that you need in your upper body turn to be able to feel like you can get your arms through? a full swing through the end of your swing versus overturning in your moves. Again, we're just, we're setting up and obviously every athlete at that point is going to learn different. So that's always a tough thing about having these conversations and generalizing things is that it's hard to be general because everybody moves different. Um, But there are some principles that have a pretty high carryover. And if I'm in a team environment, I'm going to go with probably that I'm going to go with what's the highest percentage likelihood that we're moving this guy in the right way versus the wrong way um because you're not going to be able to help everybody simply because you you're not going to ha- you're going to have those time constraints you'd need 60 coaches with 60 guys to be able to give them the individual attention to get them exactly what they needed so you're going to give them the best of what you can in that moment for the time frame that you have and it's the same for same for what I do obviously I get a little bit more time with people because I do primarily just one on one Um, so I can individualize plans and programs for them and I can tailor them from week to week. You know, somebody comes in and man, I, my back's been acting up a little bit, but I got to play some games this weekend, you know, okay, well, how is that affecting this? What does it feel like it's restricting? How can we move around that for a week while you're still recovering and allow you to still have the ability to go compete this week if you're not going to shut down? Um, whereas as a, as a team coach, that's obviously harder to do. So Again, I, 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 I am exceedingly thankful for all the people that do team coaching because I simply – my brain would not allow me to do that because I'm just a wild control freak when it comes to, like, being able to be able to do that. So I can't, I can't – the, the team tough. thing is tough for me. <laughs> no, no doubt. And, uh, again, I, I love the depth that, that you're going into. So uh, don't feel like you're, you're talking too much. Like, I, I am over here soaking all of this up, and I know that – that our our guests are too. They're not here to hear me. They're here to hear you. So uh, keep going uh, with that. And so I, I guess the next question that I really have is you've mentioned the rate of force development being extremely important. And you also uh, said that you do that in your prep work. I think, I think you hit it head on with even, you know, high school kids. There's a lot more neutral and loose movers than there is, you know, Mike Trout, really tight, uh, compact guys. And, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, and, and they're harder to work with. I'll be honest with you. Cause I have no idea what it, what it feels like to be a baby giraffe, uh, because I'm, you know, five, nine, 175 pounds. So I have no idea what that feels like. Maybe you do. Uh, but I like, I, I have a hard time with those guys just because again, especially with hitters, they're under such a time constraint. And so on the mound, they, they are, are not. And so we have those guys that have to go back and forth and it's like, uh, what, you know, what gives you with one thing it takes away in another but i'd love to hear your thoughts on on just how how we can help cap some of that mobility you mentioned uh you mentioned striding clothes and taking away some of that stuff and not having to completely turn in to uh turn all the way back out again but is there anything just over time so say we've got again we've got the fall coming up 
and summer, what are some ways that we can uh, tighten that up for them? And it may not always be, uh, it may, they may always be long and loose movers, but at the same point, how are, what are some different ways that we can help them to be able to control that better? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and honestly, I think this is like, I, I'm within what we do at elite. Like I am kind of like the creative, the creative guy, I guess. So I just, I, I sit around and I think about different things and how, how it works for other people. And I think that one of that to preface kind of where I'm going to go with this, it was, you know, I had been a catcher my whole life uh, into until college. And then my senior year in college, I started pitching. Um, I ended up being a, I'm a pretty big range of motion guy. I've got pretty big range of motion and as a hitter. It made it difficult for me to be overly successful at the college level I could get to really high bat speed essentially, but it took me so long to get there because I was a loose mover, but I didn't think about it that way. I just thought like, all right, I got to, I got to get this powerful swing off. And I didn't realize that I had to start my swing so much earlier to try to be on time because of how much length I had in my, in my hips and how much length I had in my thoracic, um, which led me to being a relatively hard thrower because I had a bigger range of motion. So when I transferred to throwing, it seemed to work really well for me and my velocity picked up super fast because I could take control or take advantage of my range of motion and relatively good strength over that range of motion. Cause that also matters. It's not just range of motion, but it's control of that range of motion. Um, and then after that, when I got back into teaching, after I stopped playing baseball, you know, I probably spend, it's probably about 50, 50. I probably spend half my time with hitters and half my time with throwers. Um, and as you learn, I almost went back and retaught myself how to hit. Um, so I could understand what it was like for some of the people that I was teaching. And the, my first thought was, okay, how do I eliminate some of this range of motion? And that was where, like, again, like creative, I just sit around, I talk myself in my head, and I've got like probably 700 different notes on my phone that I just like, things will come in my head and I put it in my phone so I don't forget them and I can go back and, and explore them later or talk to other people about them. Um, and one of the one of the ways I think that worked out for me was being able to manually essentially eliminate range of motion. So one of the things I'll do with guys is like, you know, we, we'll talk about scapular retraction a lot. And for a lot of guys, like too much scapular retraction is literally going to destroy your swing. Like if I get a ton of retraction behind my body, like there's a really good chance that I'm going to get stuck behind my body. I mean, my arms are not going to be able to get around the window of my body. Now they're going to have to come around the corner and they're going to have to cut back off my front side. So what I'll do a lot of times is, is, and again, this was me sitting and experimenting with just like how I can change my movement and then trying to explain it to kids that way and then being able to set up things for them to do was I would have them put their hand on my shoulder blade. And the first thing I would do from, from a visual standpoint, the first thing I would do is I would pull back and I would let them feel my shoulder blade basically retracting towards my spine. I'm like, can you feel that? And they'd be like, yeah. I said, so that's what retraction is so that we understand what it is. You can kind of feel how the shoulder blade is being, being pulled towards the spine. And then I said, so as a hitter, if I get that deep, the issue is there's a real good chance I'm not going to get out. And we need some resistance in the upper body, but that resistance could also kill us if we don't do it well. So then I said, here's basically what a manual retraction would be. And I'll have them keep their hand on my shoulder blade and I'll do the same thing, but I'll just I'll just manually retract my shoulder blade without having a lot of elbow 
drive backwards, which keeps my arm from being lost behind my body more. So they'll feel that and then I'll have them work on that. And you'll see a lot of kids when you do that, that don't have that physical body control or the awareness of how to move um, or control their muscles to get that function to happen. And sometimes it is just strength. Like they're just not strong to do that. Honestly, like the most kids that you're going to see in high school are still going to be winged. Like they're going to, their shoulders are going to be rolled forward. Their shoulder blades are going to be pointing like slightly off their back, like a wing yet. And that makes that very difficult because for them to get resistance, they're going to have to have a huge movement in that. What feels like, <clears throat> what feels like their shoulder blade to get there. So, you know, part of it is just manually being able to control space. Like I can manually control how much my thoracic range of motion is by turning on my stabilizers, by turning on my, turning on my obliques or my erectors, uh, which are for you at home are going to be like the muscles that run along the back or the edge of your spine, side of your spine, um, and your obliques, which run along the side of your, um, your core, which are going to be your stabilizing muscles uh, for rotation, is that I can manually lock those down by, you know, turning them on and knowing how much to turn them on and when to turn them on. So again, that's going to take exploration. So we, we'll do that through, you know, rotary stability work. So we'll do, you know, banded work where we're going to do some isometric holds. So we'll just do a band, arms extended straight out, and we're just going to hold in an isometric, in an isometric, in an isometric, isometric way um, from both directions. Um, and then we'll do that through hitting posture. So we'll have them go from just like even a starting erect position. So straight up and down to going to like top of the zone to going bottom of the zone and just doing isometric holds. Um, and then we're going to go into like eccentric and concentric um, rotation. So then we'll go through like a faster move into rotation and then a really slow move back to center and not going past center. So I'm not getting pulled by the band past center. So I'm starting to, control that range of motion so it's not just i have range of motion but i'm controlling that range of motion and then what we do is we start then after the after they've gotten to a point where they've got a good base for that so they've got control of that then we start going fast fast so it'll be like i'm going to turn out fast come back fast but i'm not going to let myself go past that center point and be pulled past that center point so now i'm controlling range of motion but i'm also starting to work on um, rate of force development as it comes into those stabilizers. So it's, can I get those muscles now to go on and off when I need them on and off versus if it takes me longer to get that to happen, then again, I'm getting to a point where even though I might be better there, it might not be as useful. It needs to be in the game yet. It's, my dog's jumping in here. It needs to be in the podcast too. Um, so that's one thing we'll do is we'll do, you know, a lot of rotary work for a lot of these guys because most of these guys aren't doing anywhere near enough rotary work and they don't know the feel and control of especially the torso, um, especially for big movers in the thoracic because that becomes difficult. Uh, we'll do scapular work uh, so that they don't need as much retraction, especially with the elbow, um, to feel resisted on the upper half. Uh, and I think, you know, honestly, like if you watch big league guys, as, as I tell kids, watch big league guys, you're going to see that a lot of, a lot of guys are basically elbow, even with shoulder line, like they're not getting elbow that much beyond shoulder line and that they're getting into a position where they're getting a little bit of what would be almost for a lot of them, probably manual shutdown of that range of motion, because I'm assuming most of them are going to be able to pull at least beyond shoulder line. And some guys are going to go beyond shoulder line, but not a lot. When you watch overhead views, you're not seeing it a lot. Um, so that's control. Of, that's control of, of range of motion. There is is something like that. Honestly, like 
if and we Justin and I had this on our podcast. We were talking about what what are our go to our go to drills. Like honestly, one of the, the most advantageous things that I've found to control range of motion, and it works on so many things from from all the tests we run on it, is check swings. Um, like if you're doing check swing, and as I tell guys to do check swings, one we're always making sure that we split grip, so we're eliminating some of the some of the strain that goes into the wrists and the hands um, of trying to break really hard. Um, so typically if we're doing checks with a bat in typical, it's usually one hand length in between. Um, if we're doing PVC, typically it's about one and a half to two hand lengths in between. Um, but people are always like, Oh, you know, this isn't part of the swing. We're not at that point. We're not even necessarily training the swing, man. We're training the body. I'm not training like this is how we're going to hit in the game. This is we're trying to get the body to be able to do what we need to do in the game when we put a bat back in the hand to do the swing. So when we're doing that prep work, you know, and that's one of those like on Twitter, people are like, oh, well, why are these guys always using PVC? And why are they doing check swings? We're not telling guys to go check swing in a game. The idea is that we're trying to get this person better being able to control the range of motion in a really short spurt so that when they do turn it on in a regular swing, they have better control of that. So check swings have been amazing for connection. And when you do a check swing, I always say it's got to be done at full intent. That's a really big thing. If we do it below full intent, um, you're not forcing the muscle to not only have to activate, but be able to decelerate and, and, and stop. So when you do it at full speed, it's really hard to be disconnected. I think I've only seen one person go relatively full speed or close to full speed and not be connected in their swing because as a rotator, when we rotate, everything gets thrown away from center. So think merry-go-round. Like I don't even know, they don't probably have merry-go-rounds in in the parks anymore. But when I was a kid, the merry-go-round, you get on a merry-go-round and there's a pole in the middle and we would get on the merry-go-round and you try to spin your friends off the merry-go-round. When you spin it fast enough, they get pulled away through centripetal force and the hands in the bat are wanting to do the same thing they're wanting to fly away from center as we speed up so when we're doing a check swing if we're letting the connectivity of the swing or something go away from us um it can be really hard to stop it because at that point it's just going to want to keep going away and that's usually what a rollover is right a rollover is just a disconnection that's being have having to be pulled back in towards center so something that's already going away from us that we have to pull back into center is essentially what you're going to get in a roll in a rollover um, so check swings are helping with connectivity because for you to be able to actually break at the end of it, you're going to have to be able to control the beginning, which means you're going to have to stay tighter to your, to your center, your spine as you rotate so that you don't lose that leverage. It's going to control range of motion. Um, so you're learning to build up more speed in a, in a shorter movement and be able to stop. Um, so again, we're controlling range of motion that way. So you can see a guy and have him take a regular swing, videotape it and videotape it from a couple of different angles. Like I'll typically videotape from, you know, chest on from behind the hitter. So basically where the hitter would be in between me and where the pitcher would be. And then I'll typically get an overview so I can kind of see how their body sets up from, from an overview standpoint of how it's moving. Um, and you take a regular swing, take a, take a check swing with a, with a PVC or even with a bat. And a lot of times we'll use a fungo as well with uh, check swings because it's a little bit lighter. Uh, and a little bit longer since we're choking up, so we're not losing the full length of the bat um, of using a regular bat. Um, and just look at look at the difference in how much spacing is in with their body. So 
like more hip shoulder separation as it were is not necessarily a great thing as a hitter. Um, enough that allows you to speed up and to be relatively able to transition speed from one part of the, to the other is important and for spacing to make sure that it gets out of the way so that it's out of the way for the next segment um, is important, but like check swings have been amazing as it, as it goes to controlling range of motion um, and changing even like if people have too much pullback in their load, you know, they're going to get less, typically less pullback in that as well. Cause you know, the, the brain is essentially trying to control the action that's happening, which is getting to full speed and shutting down as rapidly as possible. So th- those, those things definitely have helped for, for the band work. Um, and also check swings have been, been huge for that. Oh, I love that. And uh, I, I think that, <laughs> that you hit the nail on the head with, with check swing work. And I think it's funny. I think you guys even mentioned it in the podcast watching. I'm sure you guys have big league guys in all the time, but even watching pro guys that have not learned to decelerate properly, they look like kids trying to like, they can't, they just can't even control it at all. And it's, it's really interesting. And so I'd love, I'd love to really dive into uh decel work because, you know, we talk about bucketing players and I can really count on, maybe one hand of guys that do it really well as, as amateurs. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, cause that, that also leads right into your force production and transmission that we were just talking about. But essentially the, the best way that I can describe decel is just like your braking process and trying to, you're braking to speed up for the next segment that you're about to go through. And so uh, I, I, I don't know if that's the terms that you would use, uh, but that's that's the easiest thing for me to be able to explain to kids of why we want to be able to do this. Uh, otherwise, you're just literally spit like your merry-go-round reference. You're spinning off the ball and everything is going to the third base dugout for for right-handed hitters. Uh, but I'd love to hear how do we how do we train what how do we notice that on video? Because I, I don't think a lot of guys are going to have K vest. Uh, but how do we notice that on video? And then how do we start to train that and hit that every single day? And I, I think the check swings is, is a big one of just to be able to to feel those th- different things. And again, we do that every day in movement prep, but I'd love to hear more thoughts on, let's just dive, you know, two feet in to all of this stuff. Yeah. So like if I'm watching, if I'm watching video, so if somebody's sending me video, honestly, like if people are like, what do you look for? Like the first thing I, the first thing I look at, if I'm just getting a blind video and I haven't been able to do, let's say I haven't been able to screen this person. I haven't been able to do anything other than just, here's a video. What do you got? Um, the first thing I look for is how the pelvis is working. Um, if the pelvis is in a poor position or it's, it's moving while it should be basically just rotating on axis, it is very hard to decel correctly. So think about it. I guess I'll think about it this way. Like the example I kind of always give with kids, and I'll see if I can get this to work with on, on screen. I'll explain it as I do it is let's say I have this pen here. So pelvis is in the middle. We'll say that this is the front hip and we'll say this is the back hip. So what, what a lot of guys do is with the front hip is they keep the front hip as an anchor point and then they rotate around the front hip. So the pelvis is actually going this way as the body is turning, where in essence what we want is we want to be able to rotate around the pelvis where the body is turning and the pelvis is staying in the same place and rotating. And I would honestly say most most guys that I that come in on a daily basis, like amateur athletes, their pelvis goes inward against that front hip. So again, the front hip again is this point here, and the pelvis here is going to come around the front hip. So 
couple of things are going to happen when that happens. One, the pelvis isn't going to be stable. So when it's not stable, the body's going to keep rotating until it feels like it can get stable, which is going to lead a lot of times to poor deceleration because the body can't slow down because it can't become stable. It's also going to lose to, it's also going to lead to lack of space. So my pelvis going around my front hip this way. So front hip here, if I'm pointing it down, so obviously I've got an athlete flat to the ground here, but this going this way, now my pelvis is also getting in the way of my turn. So it's blocking my turn, which is going to typically be then when your athletes lose posture going up. So once that pelvis starts to go in towards the plate around the hip, we're going to lose spacing for the arms. The body has to go up to give spacing to come back. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look for pelvis. I'm going to see how is the pelvis moving. One of the biggest indicators, if you're just watching kids too, is you can just watch as a result of what their back leg does. So if the back leg is basically rolling in towards the plate, that means the pelvis is coming around around a almost like front anchored hip point instead of rotating again around the pelvis and the pelvis being the center as opposed to rounding around the front part. So I'm going to look typically in there first because deceleration is going to be almost impossible if the pelvis is in a bad position. And the same thing holds true for throwers. So if you guys are working with throwers, you know, as you can definitely like lead leg block has been a huge thing. And lead leg block happens at both, right? Like we lead leg block as a hitter. We lead leg block as, as a thrower. Um, lead leg block. I think a lot of times with throwers as well has been like guys just saying, Hey, find a way to block your front leg. When in reality, if the pelvis is in a bad position, the lead leg isn't going to block because the pelvis is going to be still moving, trying to find stability. So in essence, it's the ability to find a good pelvis location and move well through the pelvis that allows for deceleration. So again, like that's probably where I would start with that is I would, I would look at how the lower half is moving there, um, pelvis starting out. Um, and then as we work into um, deceleration from there, it's going to come into, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids aren't doing a lot of adductor like hip adductor work they're not doing a lot of things that help the pelvis decel very well um they're getting um too big of range of motion that we're trying to cut off again which is going to be kind of like that striding across um from there you know going into decel the hips in essence as they rotate around the pelvis they accelerate for relatively about a quarter of the swing okay so they're speeding up for the first quarter. That doesn't mean they're going to stop after the first quarter. That means they're speeding up for the first quarter. And then the energy is essentially should be passing up to the next segment. So if you just think about it from a simplistic thought process, the pelvis speeds up for the first quarter. The thoracic is going to speed up for the second quarter, the arms for the third quarter, the bat for the last quarter. So essentially, let's just say that would be a general thought of kind of like how we're transitioning energy. So from your standpoint of like how you, how you were like, Hey, we've got to break one thing to speed another thing up. I always, I always like use the analogy of if I'm standing next to a kid and I'll say, okay, we're standing next to each other side by side. We're both going to run the same speed. Who wins the race? And they're going to say, well, we're going to tie. I said, okay, you're right. So then I'll take a step behind them. And I said, okay, now here's our starting. I'm a step behind you. We're still going to run the same speed. Who's going to win? They're going to be like, well, I'm, I'm going to win now. I said, okay, so let's do this again. Let's just walk slow together. And then as we're walking slow together, I'll grab their shirt and I'll pull them backwards. So essentially I'd say, okay, think if you were moving at two miles an hour and I was moving at two miles an hour, 
and I grab your shirt and I pull you, I'm taking one mile an hour from you. So I'm not going to completely stop you, but I'm going to slow you down one mile an hour. So you're going from two to one and I'm going to go from two to three because I took that mile an hour from you. That's essentially how energy is being trained. We're taking from another thing to add to another thing. Um, another one I, I think that kids kind of can understand more is, is and I use this probably more throwers just because I feel like, you know, velocity becomes such a huge concept with throwers is I say, imagine you're on top of a semi and right now on top of that semi, you can throw 70 miles an hour. So if that semi is just in their park, you throw the ball, it goes 70. If the semi is going five, the ball is already moving five miles an hour with you. You're essentially just adding more speed to it. So I should in theory be able to throw relatively 75, all things considered. If I let the semi go to 10, obviously I'm going to be able to throw harder. If I let the semi go to 15, I'm going to be able to throw harder. And that's kind of what that's kind of what sequencing is, is it's basically just a head start. Like I'm giving myself more of a head start before the next segment goes to do that. So then we'll be like, hey, like your lower half, we're just gonna call it lower half, is gonna be first gear. So your first gear is going, second gear is coming with it, but it hasn't been engaged yet. So it's moving with first gear, but then I'm gonna throw it into second gear to get to the next part. And the arms are third gear and the bat is fourth gear. So Again, even as I'm in one, it's not like two is sitting way back here. Like I'm in one, one is moving with two, one just has a head start. So it's got the head start on it, but they're moving together. And then one cuts out, whoop, and then two takes over. And then three is still moving with two. It's not like three is going to sit like in a swing. It's not like my hands are going to sit there and wait for everything to go first. In reality, everything is moving together. It's just every piece has a head start over the other piece. So you know, as long as they understand that sequencing isn't trying to like make gaps between them, it's just to have an initial space between those movements so that you have the ability to have a head start over the segment prior to it. And then if you can stabilize that segment rapidly, you can transition energy to the, to the next segment quicker. So again, like I'm going to look at pelvis first because usually when guys can't decel well, the pelvis is just in a bad position. And once the lower body can't stabilize and decelerate well, the upper body typically doesn't either. Now, sometimes it will under like, you know, a panic mode of the body, the brain panics and tries to find something that can restabilize the body. Um, so you'll sometimes see that guys will not decelerate well through the pelvis, but they will decelerate through the torso simply because the brain's doing it out of necessity to try to find balance that's not there. Um, but there's where I would typically start. Honestly, if the pelvis is in a good position, decel is relatively easier and again closing guys off is an easy way to do that it's going to typically keep the pelvis in a better position because if i close off i would have to go even farther like if i'm if again if i'm square middle front hip again back hip so i'm in that position and i already closed myself off a little bit so now i've closed myself off this way a little bit it's going to be really hard now for me to go all the way back around this point. So it's going to be a lot more likely that I'm going to just rotate off that point a little bit to get my access to turn that way, which is going to allow me to be able to stabilize my pelvis sooner because it's controlled in a, in a point rotating um, versus moving. So when it's, again, when it's moving, it's just really hard to decelerate. So that's where I would start. If I'm watching video, I'm going to watch what is the pelvis doing. And a lot of times like the overhead view is great for that because you're going to see whether the pelvis stays here and rotates you're going to see whether the pelvis is just rotating in this place or whether the pelvis is rotating and moving directionally either forward towards the pitcher or forward towards the plate. Um, man, I don't think, I, I don't know if I've ever really seen anybody have their pelvis go like 
farther back during the swing. Um, <laughs> right. But I definitely see guys, air the, I see guys air the other way, you know? So, I mean, that's where I first probably start looking at video to kind of assess that way. So let's, let's go to the next phase, which is how do we train it? You you mentioned check swing uh, swings, which with this PVC and split grip, uh, you could probably do that with front toss, even BP. I'm, I'm, I've seen some guys do that, but uh, what are some other ways that you like to do that? So we do, we'll do some manual, um, some manual work. Um, and this is some of the stuff that um, I've run through with um, other big league guys that aren't necessarily even in our organization. Um, Cause I can't really share obviously what happens with that kind of stuff with our organization, but other guys in other organizations where we do manual um, manual work. So manual work is essentially I'm going to have them start first. We're going to work both directions. So I'll have them start in their launch position essentially. So they're going to go out into where they feel like they're going to launch their swing from. And then I'm going to grab their upper body. So we'll say we have a right-handed hitter here. I'm going to grab their upper body. I'm going to try to rotate their upper body farther back and they're going to sit and hold that position. So I'm going to, I'm, they're going to basically fight me from rotating them farther into their turn and typically in that point, like you're going to know about where somebody's strength level is because you'll feel them get weaker. So you're not going to take them past like a breaking point. Um, but I'll manually move them. Then I'll have them typically hold that for five to six seconds. Then I'll let them relax. Then we'll do it again. And we'll do that from the launch position. And then we're going to do manual from the end position. So I'll get them to essentially what will be the end of their swing. And they're going to hold the end of their swing. And then I'm going to take their torso. I'm going to try to turn their torso farther through the end of their swing. Um, and their job is at that point to be able to fight me pulling them farther through the end of their swing. And again, we'll do typically like a five to five to six second hold there. Um, and you're going to find your athletes in that position are going to be weaker one, because they're going to be tilted somewhat over the plate Two because that position is a little bit more compromising, which is something to understand is that that position being more compromising means that we need to be stronger through that position. So then I'll manually turn them, have them reset, try to turn them through again. What we'll do then is we'll do that from multiple angles. Um, so we'll have them do that from like top of the zone posture to middle of the zone posture to bottom of the zone posture so that they're working um, in different planes of movement as we're working on strength there. Um, we'll do the same thing with that um, outside of manual. We'll do that with like a med ball. So same kind of thing. We'll have them get in their launch position. They'll get themselves set. And once they're in their launch position, we'll throw the med ball at them. And they're going to have to stabilize the med ball at first without trying to go back farther with it. Um, and as they're showing control with that, we speed the med ball up. And then we start throwing the med ball farther away. So the farther the hands get away from center, the harder it is to stabilize center. So as they're getting more strength, we're just going to add to that a little bit. And obviously, we can add weight to the med ball as well. Um, and then from that progression, then we'll take them from a catch then into the throw. So they're going to get into a launch. They're going to stabilize the ball. So they're going to catch all the momentum, the ball, stabilize it from taking them back into their turn farther. And then they're going to deliver it back into their turn. Um, and then we're going to do the same thing at the end of the swing again. So we're going to get them to the end of the swing. They're going to be at the end of their swing. And then we're going to throw, we're going to throw a ball, um, up into the end of their swing and they're going to stabilize the ball again, starting with something less in weight and very little speed in the toss. And as they're showing stability, we're going to increase, um, or increase the speed or increase the distance away from the body or increase the weight. Um, again, like you got to use your best judgment at first as you go through stuff like that, like take it easy at first, make, make them show very good control before you start to challenge them outside of that, because we're not trying to put somebody in a compromising position and then 
you know, ultimately do damage by hurting them because they're in a compromising position before they're ready for that load. Um, so start slow. And you'll, I mean, honestly, like, you'll know if you're asking them for feedback, like, how do you feel here? Oh man, I feel like it's a little bit wobbly here. Yeah. Like I'm, 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 I'm working here. You know, what's your work, work level on this on a one to 10? Like how much are you having to work to control this? You know, and if somebody's like, Hey, you know, it's closer to like a five. I'm like, all right, we might be ready for a little bit of a jump. It's like, man, it's like an eight. Like I'm working pretty really hard here. I'm not going to change the intensity level. Um, because if I go harder and they can't manage, it's just more likely they're going to get hurt. So that's, that's, that's what we'll do a lot for, for that. Honestly, any kind of, for the, for the pelvis, for the lower half, like any sort of like med ball throw, you know, we do a lot of scoop throws, um, because the additional weight and the upper body needing to be able to accelerate, the lower body is going to have to decelerate faster. So we'll, and again, these are, you know, things that we've tested on the force plate to show that, okay, in this position, what's happening, are we actually increasing rate of force production by doing these, these rotational med ball throws, um, the positions of the throw, um, to do. So, I mean, that's that's another good thing that we found to increase, um, not only rate of force production, but deceleration is just actual med ball throw. So when you're working again, those should be done maximum 10 and they should be done in different planes. So you're working some med ball throws from essentially what would be your top of the zone to your middle of the zone, to your bottom of the zone. We also work directionality. So we'll do med balls, med ball throws to the pole side. We'll do med ball throws to uh, middle and we'll do med ball throws to opposite field as well. So we're just using a wall in our gym and they'll just have targeted practice where they're working in each direction because each one's going to require a different amount of torso turn and connection before we throw the ball. So we're just we're trying to make it as game-specific as we can as we're training some of these elements just so that like the transition that. back to the swing becomes a little bit easier than just training something outside of a, a field that we're trying to create. Sure. Is that a, like four to six pounds? So typically we're going to start out with – lighter part of its age and, and you know that's why we do the assessments to start to kind of see where strength level is where breaking point is um but yeah typically we're going to start with if we're talking like a high school kid i'm typically going to start with like a six because they should at that point be able to manage a six pretty easy um and depending on depending on what you have available like get a radar gun on it get a radar gun on the ball speed so if i'm going to do a six pound ball i'm going to have i'm going to have a notebook that I'm bringing into my sessions. And in that I'm going to write, okay, med ball, six pound throw, scoop throw from low position. So we're talking like low in the zone, six pound ball, med ball, scoop throw straight forward is 23 miles an hour. And to the pull side is 25 and to the away side is 21. And then from mid position to high position, and then what you're doing is you're basically just saying, Hey, as we're working through this from week to week, we were looking to see obviously a gains, you know, we want to see that we're, we're being able to move the needle of what we're doing, but it keeps for accountability. So your athletes aren't just going through reps. Um, we were keeping accountability by using a radar to track. Um, and then, and then as you hit certain thresholds, um, you know, you can change the weight, move up to an eight pound. Um, when I was playing, when, when we were doing a lot of rotational work, we would do like a, a pyramid down. So we would start with like a 10, a 10 pound and we would do uh, four throws with a 10, four throws with an eight, four throws with a six, four throws with a four, um, where you're just essentially forcing the muscle to be turned on as much as it can for the 10. And then if the muscle stays working as rapidly as it is at 
at a higher capacity as the weight goes down. Obviously, it should feel like we're being able to go at an accelerated speed. Um, so, you know, play around a lot with that as well with, with different positioning, um, tracking progress. And again, like it's easy enough if you have like a pocket radar at your practice, like as you're pairing guys off to go through different work and stuff like that, like have one kid operate the pocket radar and write down in the logbook with, with what an athlete's doing and have the other athlete doing it. That way you don't have to be around. You can always check the logbook later to be like, hey, man, what, what's going on this week? Your numbers went down two miles an hour. My first question would be, are you hurt? You know, are you hurt? Is your body beat up? Like, is the number low simply because not because you weren't trying, but like, is there something physically wrong? You know, have you not been sleeping well this week or whatever it is? Because that's an easy way just to kind of have a conversation with an athlete um, and to keep them accountable. Like, if you're hurt, I need to know that too. I need to know if your body's breaking down. I need to know those things. Like, if we need to cut your workload a little bit, I can't. I don't have enough time in practice to ask 60 dudes how much you've been sleeping and how, how, what your, what your body feels like. Do you have any aches and pains? Have you been eating well? Like, I don't have to, like we would lose the whole practice just to go through that. So keeping them accountable for that. And then when guys numbers aren't in the windows that they should be, then you can have conversation with individual athletes instead of trying to have those conversations all the time with every athlete. The good thing about a logbook is you can look at it after practice. You know, you get done with practice and then you go, okay, these three guys, I want to make sure I shoot them a text tonight or I want to talk to them at the beginning of practice and be like, hey, going through the logbook, look like your number's down. Is everything feeling okay? Is everything all right with you? And that way I'm not having to talk to 60 guys if they don't need me talking to them. I think it's definitely beneficial there too. I love that. And I know I've only got you for a couple more minutes, uh, but I want to – I went through and, and listened to the episode where you talked about your favorite drills. And so, I, I, again, uh, going back through the the podcast that you did with Justin and and uh, you guys went through several of your, of your favorite drills. And so I'd like to just spend the rest of this time – I'm going to ask you what your drill is and then just, you know – in your best succinct manner, we'll try and get through it in as many as we can in the time that we, that we have. Uh, but in your, in your most succinct manner, just kind of explain what it is. Uh, and you know, this is the part of the podcast where, where people are probably like, when are they going to get to the drills? We've been talking about them the whole time, but, but here, here's your content. Uh, so, uh, so here, so here's your first one, but I'd love to hear, uh, you guys did a segment on decision training. And for me, it's, it, it, it's it's a term that comes up and it's it's how how simple can we make decision training uh and for me it's uh it's the decision not to swing so i think that we deal with a lot of kids that are amateurs that are caught in between whether it's just timing or balls and strikes uh and fastball curveball and they never they, they're never sitting one and adjusting to another one and they're never swinging until they decide not to and so for me i i, I did want to throw that out there first because i think that if you haven't had a conversation with players about that, that is a huge one because I think a lot of them are trying to decide to swing or when to swing and what to swing at rather than just saying, hey, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting middle, middle fastball, and if I don't get it, I'm just not going to swing. Or if I see funky spin, I'm just not going to swing until I have two strikes, whatever it is. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on, I don't know if you agree or disagree, feel free to disagree with me if, if you want to, uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how do we train better decisions with when guys are starting to throw harder and harder at every single level. Yeah, I mean, d- decision-making at the end of the day, like when we're talking from from a high end of the game thought process, like decision-making is the, probably the number one, man, like probably the number one factor in, in what we're going to look for. Like it, 
if we're not swinging at the balls that we should be swinging, meaning we're taking pitches that we should be swinging at and we're swinging at balls that we shouldn't be swinging at, you're going to have a really hard time being successful. That just seems like common sense, but I don't think that we train it a lot. I don't, I think it's, you know, we get pressed for time. We're trying to get reps in. We're not keeping kids accountable for learning decision making. And then it's not just making good decisions, but it's making good decisions rapidly. So I've got a very small window to make good decisions. And to do that, I've got to have time to practice making those decisions, which means I'm going to have to fail. You're going to have to put, you're going to have to put kids as you work through this decision-making thing under duress, where it's more likely they're going to start making bad decisions. We're just going to be more like the game. You get in a game, there's more pressure. Like when we're in a cage hitting, there's very little pressure because if you make a bad decision, I'm just going to throw you another pitch so we can keep working. If you miss hit a ball, I'm going to throw you another pitch so you get to keep working. In a game, that doesn't happen. In a game, it's like, man, like you make a mistake and you hit a ball and play and you're out, you're out. You just go, you go back and sit down. You know, if you take a pitch that you shouldn't take, like that might be strike three. If you swing at a pitch you're not supposed to swing at, that might be strike three. Or maybe that puts you in the hole 0-2 now. Now you, you're you a hitter that gets like your heart racing when you have two strikes because you're worried about what's going to happen with two strikes. So decision-making becomes a really important part because moving moving well is – substantially easier than making good decisions and tracking, tracking pitches. So um, as it goes to decision training, you know, we'll start with simple things of like one, most kids don't know where the plate is. And when I say that, like when they're like, Oh, that ball, if, if I'm like, if I'm talking to kids, number one, like you can't see the plate when you're hitting, you're looking at the pitcher. You have to have an idea where you're standing to know relatively where the plate is to understand where your strike zone is first. And I don't think a lot of kids do. That's why you always get kids like, oh, that ball is outside. I'm like, look, we got video. Your parents took video from behind. That ball is actually an inch on the plate. Now, maybe it's a different pitch then. I'm like, maybe you're just not aware yet of where your, your zone is. And a lot of times what that is is that kids, even though we can talk to them about approach, kids always tend to target middle in. And nobody pitches middle in at basically any level. Like if you, every kid, if every kid that comes in, I'm like, where are you getting pitched? I'm getting pitched away. Okay. How many balls got did come in, came inside on you this week? Uh, one, but you know, I think the catcher set up and the guy just missed in. Okay. So guys are attacking you away. Why are you still looking in and just hoping that you're going to get the one pitch out of a hundred that's going to be in that you can tattoo. Like at that point, we're searching for such low odds. So part of that goes to approach decision-making a lot of times is based off of what your approach is. If guys are throwing me away and I'm attacking away, I can do damage away. And when I say damage, like getting into the fly ball, launch angle, crazy people terminology thing, like doing damage is getting the ball over the infield. I don't care if it's an, a foot over the infielders. If the ball goes over the infielder's head, I'm automatically at first and the race becomes, can I get to second? That's damage to me. Damage is I don't have to sprint through first base if I don't have to. That doesn't mean you can't hit ground balls. Like there's going to be sometimes I got to sprint through first, but damage to me is a ball that is at least clearing the infield. So there's only a couple people in the outfield that can defend you. So when kids approaches sometimes don't match what they're doing, it's really hard to make good decisions. Like if I'm getting a lot of balls away and I'm attacking away, it is easier for me to do damage away when I'm looking when I'm, when I know I should be probably looking away, but I'm still thinking in, I'm going to make a lot of bad decisions away. And that's going to lead to obviously miss hit balls and everything else like that. So as it comes to drill wise, like different things we do is we're going to always track percentage of success. But first thing we're going to do is we're going to make them understand kind of where they are. So first part is going to be, you know, just a simple seven ball. We're going to put seven balls across the front of the plate. We're going to go through a slow flip at first. 
and they're just going to call out numbers. We usually go inside ball, so closest ball to the athlete, which would be like on the black on the inside corner is going to be one. The farthest ball on the outside black is going to be seven. And we're just going to look for their accuracy. And usually what we're going to do there is we're going to even have it a little bit so we're keeping other people engaged. We're going to have their teammates behind home plate. Uh, not behind home plate, like in the cage, like outside the cage. We're not trying to get people hurt. Um, and they're going to swing and they're going to call out the number of where the ball was. And then we're going to keep them accountable. So if they're yelling two and everybody else is like, nope, that was three. And we're seeing like how accurate can you be in this round of actually knowing where the ball is in relative to where your body positioning is. Um, then we're going to speed up those rounds. And obviously the more we speed the ball up, typically the less accurate hitters are in knowing where the ball was. And again, we're not looking like if you're not perfect knowing where the ball is, you can't hit well. It's just being accountable for knowing and, and kind of cataloging where those pitches are. So first thing is just understanding that. Number two is up and down. Now, anybody that is around me on a daily basis knows that in my mind, one of the biggest like errors in a swing is posture. And when I say posture, I don't even mean being able to keep posture. I mean that a lot of hitters stride to the same posture, no matter where the pitch height is. So they're striding to typically a high posture. And then as they're turning, they also have to sink to try to get to the bottom of the zone, or they have to just disconnect and throw the bat down. So we'll do posture checks. So basically, as I let guys know, like you have to basically pick the posture of where the pitch is going to be before you hit the ground. The better you can do that, the less adjustment you have to make in your swing. The more you misjudge posture or height of the pitch with your posture, the more you have to adjust in the actual swing, which makes your job harder. And that decision has to be made super early because that decision has to be made while I'm stepping. Like the in and out of the swing, I, the inside and outside of the swing, I can make that decision a little bit later because that's in my turn. So I have a little bit of leeway there. Not much, but I have a little bit more leeway there. But the up and down of my posture is really important. So then we'll do up and down of posture. Um, and at that point, we're basically just working for, you know, whether we're using like a piece of PVC as kind of a reference point, uh, no swing. We'll just have them stride into posture and they're trying to land is accurately where, let's just say, like the center of the chest is pointing to where the ball would cross the zone. And then we'll have we'll have athletes again behind them tracking like, oh, no, nope, you were, you know, 20 degrees above where that pitch height was or nope, that was pretty close. That was good. You know, you're, you're within whatever your whatever your range is going to want to be there. Um, so we're, we're doing that for decision making. Like, are we making good decisions on where the pitch height is? Um, that then takes us into just forcing the brain to have to be, to be aware of making decisions. And then we're going to go to like, you know, an overhand toss. I don't like to do a lot of underhand toss just because we're not seeing balls come up from that angle. So I don't like my hitters being overly exaggerated, looking down at a hand. I like them to feel like they're more neutral. So I usually go overhand. Uh, but then I'm just going to show them like, here's what, here's what a fastball backspin would look like you see that and here's me throwing the curveball and it's going to look like the same spin just the opposite direction so as i do this fast sometimes it's going to be if you're watching sometimes it's hard to figure out am i going forward or backward and that's why those two pitches mirror themselves well like a, a fastball that's moving one way and a breaking ball that's moving the opposite so we'll go into fastball curveball recognition i'll say okay you see both of these which one do you want to hit i'm like all right i'm going to hit the fastballs so at that point, the only one they're allowed to swing at is a fastball. So if I throw a curveball and they swing at it, that would be a swing decision error at that point. And then the faster we start moving the speeds up, so we start with just a slower spin, either forward or backward, and then we go into a faster spin, and we throw faster and faster until we kind of get to a breaking point of like, man, we're starting to make some bad decisions here. And at that point, it might just be they need more time. Like they just need to see a thousand more balls 
so that they have more cataloged in their brain of what they're seeing so they can make those decisions quicker. So it might be like, hey, man, like you just need to see 200 more breaking balls so you can just get used to having that visual of either the spin or the hand positioning or the hump of the ball or wherever it ends up being that that hitter is seeing that they're identifying. Um, then we'll do two seam versus four seam. So we're getting basically a similar spin pattern. It's just a matter of whether they're seeing the seams or whether they're seeing spin. So like if you're seeing a four seam, it's typically going to look almost like the ball is a little bit more pink if it's spinning. And if you're getting two seam, you're typically seeing that the ball looks a little bit more white. It looks like there's a little bit more like two red lines that are spinning around it. So then it'll be the same thing. Like, all right, what do you want to swing at here? Uh, and they might say, I'm going to swing at two seam. And then we're just, we're going four seam, two seam, and they're only swinging at uh, the ones that they ID'd. And then we'll switch and be like, all right, let's go. Now you're only going to swing at four seam and you're letting the two seam go. And then obviously like as they progress with that, then we start working on doing that a little bit with um, location as well. Like, hey, let's target the upper part of the zone, you know, with, or just maybe, well, let me, let me rewind. We might then do upper zone, lower zone. Like, okay, we're only swinging at stuff that appears to you that is, you know, upper thigh to belly button, or we're only swinging at things in the zone that are upper thigh to lower part of the knee. And they're going to target that. Then we're going to start to add in spin with location. So we're targeting certain areas. And again, we're talking top of the zone, we're talking in to out. Like if I'm looking in the top of the zone, I should be able to cover a wider part of the zone if I'm really looking up there. If I'm looking at the whole zone, it's hard to cover in, out, up, down. But if I'm targeting certain areas, it's easier to do that. So then we'll start targeting certain areas so they can kind of get a feel for that. Um, and again, then we're working up, down, in, out with then other spins. And again, just holding them accountable. And, and um, a lot of times, like I said, having teammates around watching and judging their accountability too, like lets their teammates start tracking more pitches. And they start sitting in the back, like ball starts coming out of hand, like, oh, that ball looks high. You should swing at this one. And that's essentially what you're trying to do as a hitter. You're trying to just make decisions quicker. Like, is this ball headed in a direction that I'm supposed to hit? But with decision making also comes like, does this kid do we does this kid know yet what he is good at hitting and not hitting? So if we're not doing some sort of like spray chart and like, man, like we got to be swinging at that ball down and in, but down and in, this kid's only going to bat 105 because he just doesn't have the movement quality or body control to hit that ball well. Then I don't want him swinging at that pitch in the first place, even though it's a strike. We're not swinging at that unless we have to, even though it's on the plate, because we're not going to have a good enough chance to, to get on base swinging at it. So it's knowing that as well. Um, and then, again, just speeding up velocity as it goes. And then that just that kind of keeps leading them up. And when guys feel like they're starting to feel good, we always do heat checks. Like, you feeling pretty good today? Like, yeah. Like, all right, let's go. Like, here it comes, man. Like, let's see what you got. Like, how are you feeling? Uh, yeah, I'm still a little bit here. I still feel like I'm, I'm getting a little bit jumpy on that ball yet. I feel like I've once you start going fast, I can't relax. And I, as soon as I tense up, I start making bad decisions. And and then we talk through some of that stuff. And, okay, well, you know, what do you feel like in the stuff we've done so far, what do you feel like has helped you the most to to feel pressured but still feel like you can do make the right decisions? And I'm like, well, you know, the, the four-seam versus two-seam spin or, you know, in versus out or up versus down or whatever it ends up being. And then we go back and we kind of feed what they need that makes them feel like they're – being able to make the decisions that they need to. And obviously, you know, as a coach, or even like I said, the other players keeping everybody accountable always helps. That way it's not just like, oh, okay, well, you did pretty good today. Well, what's pretty good? I mean, if you were 60% correct today, but you were 65% last time, well, that's not good. That means we're regressing a little bit. 
And it doesn't mean we're not going to have ups and downs. Like as we get better, like there's going to be peaks and valleys, but I don't want to just say, Oh, that was better. or That was good. Like, I want to know, like, how are we actually progressing? Like, are we trending upwards, even if it's going up and down? Are we flatlined? Are we like actually trending down a little bit? Like, how are we actually moving so that we know, like, are we, are we doing the right things for you? Or is there some other way we need to attack this? Because this is actually not benefiting you the way we think it should. No, I love that. And and I think, you know, you, you can take so much of that simple drill and make it so complicated, complicated, just based on different visual points, different pitches, different locations and different speeds. And like, that's, that's probably a year's worth of content right there in, in just decision-making. And, and I love that, but uh, I, I do have some more drills here listed before you go. Just again, you you and Justin both uh, mentioned that these were some of your favorites, and I think that they're super beneficial because, again, this time of year, we're all trying to reevaluate what we're doing, trying to add, trying to subtract, trying to decide was this worth it and was it not. And another one that I think that is is a pretty easy one to implement is just the different bats. So you guys mentioned long bats, short bats, inloaded, uh, handle loaded. And so, uh, I'd love for you to kind of go into your thought process behind that. Are they good for everyone? And it's just like, Hey, figure it out. Or do you have some specific thoughts behind when to use those and where? Yeah, definitely. Like, I, um, you know, as it goes for drills, I'm in a, on a normal basis. Like I, <laughs> it's funny cause I'll tell my kids all the time. Like I don't like necessarily prescribing drills and I'm going to, I'm going to back that up with, Kind of the analogy that I like to use with kids is like if you're going to school and your teacher goes, hey, we're going to have a test on Friday and on or on Monday. We'll go Monday. It's probably a better idea, even though that'd be not nice. But you're going to get a Monday test. And before you go on the weekend, before you go on the weekend, your teacher is going to tell you what you're going to be able to do to study. So let's say this. We've got student number one who learns really well or studies really well by going through the notes they take in class. Like they're a world-class note taker. They take it the way it explains that they understand it really, really well. So if they can go through their notes, they're going to be successful. You're going to have another student who is going to do really well if they can study by going back in the book. Like I can go back in the book and, and read through the things I need to read through. And let's say you've got a third student who learns really well by going over old homework. Like they're going to go through their old homework and see where they made their mistakes before and learn from that. Uh, and that's how they progress their learning. Now, this teacher goes, hey, when you're going home for the weekend, you're only allowed to take home your book. You've got to leave your notes in class. got to leave your old homework in class. So at that point, if I'm prescribing that to the student, this is how you're going to study for the test. The kids that work really well by studying from the book are going to go home and feel like it's a really easy way or easy to get a good grade on that test because you've hit them in their wheelhouse. The kid that learns, let's say, from his notes He's going to go home and it's not that he can't do well in the test, but he's going to have to do an exceedingly more amount of work because learning by going through the book doesn't fit his learning style as well. So again, he can be successful. It's just going to take more time. And the same thing holds true for the other, for the other side of it. So when it comes to just prescribing drills, I, I do part of it and I'll explain that in a second. I do part of it so that people have at least a game plan to go with but we're not always going to be able to hit people in their wheelhouse. And the issue becomes if you get somebody, especially that works hard and you prescribe something a certain way or a certain drill, and it doesn't fit the way that they understand or can create, they're going to do a lot of work and feel like they're not getting much out of it, which is going to be very discouraging. It's going to lead them to have 
less of a, okay, next time you prescribe something to them, less of an effect of like, oh man, coach gave me this, like I'm going to go rock it. It seemed like, well, the last thing he gave me didn't really help much. And we have to understand that as coaches, like, you know, kids have feelings too. They have struggles they're going to go through. They're going to have trust issues at certain point, especially when they're doing a lot of the work that we're asking them to do and they're not seeing results. Even if it's not immediate results, even if it's been two weeks and I feel like, man, I'm, I'm in the same place or it might not, it might even feel like I've backtracked a little bit. Like that narrative is hard. So as it goes to drills, I try to try to implore my students to become their best drill makers. Meaning like use your creativity. Like what would you do here? If I give you this instance, like you're, you're long in your swing. What do you feel like you could do to make that better? Like, how does this make sense to you? And you know, they might be like, I don't know, because a lot of them haven't had to ever work through that stuff. They just had people hand them everything in life. So they just wait for somebody to give them the answer versus them having to be more creative or be a little bit thoughtful in what they're doing. So as it goes to drills, um, I try not to, but I do give kids tools, right? So I, I tell every kid, every kid has a toolbox and I'm going to put all these tools in your toolbox. I'm going to give you all these different ideas, concepts, you know, some drills like a, like a heavy bat or a long bat or a short bat or feet down or check swing or whatever it ends up being. These are all just tools. Now, when you have a task, you can open your toolbox and you can choose whatever tool you want to use. You don't have to use a tool because I said this is a good tool. You use the one that makes the most sense for you for this task. My job is just to keep feeding you tools, not to tell you what to do, but to give you different tools to be able to make a decision for yourself. So with the long bat, honestly, like I started using our long bat and our long, our long overweight bat is 37 inches and 40 ounces. So it's kind of like what you call like the Bryce Harper bat where all that videos were going around um, while he was younger training with, with that big bat. And at first, honestly, it was like I grabbed the bat and I always, I always do everything first with me before I even like talk to a kid about it or even – and immediately I was like, oh, okay. And my logic went to if I lose this bat early, my I start to do really hard to stop, like really hard. Like it's going to like – and the rest of my swing is going to feel like I'm just trying to like not lose the bat, not even control it, just not lose it because it's a lot of weight. But if I can keep this really close to me, I can keep if I can keep my arms and that barrel relatively tight to my turn and then I just let the weight go at the end it felt like I could barely swing and the ball would just erupt so as I'm as I'm going in that I'm using the heavy bat to control the connectivity in the swing and when the barrel is releasing away from the swing um, with some kids though it's it's too much and like with that we've got to slow back down before we speed back up because they're not able to control it well enough that we're now going to backtrack too much before we're going to see a game. And in season, I can't ever do that. Like in season, I'm not trying to guy, have a guy regress just because he needs to get better at something. Like I need him to feel like he's progressing, but understanding where he can still be better. Um, so I love the heavy bat from that standpoint. And honestly, for a bigger majority than the minority, it, it feeds better connectivity. Um, and again, the guys that it doesn't, I'm going to let them still kind of play around with it a little bit until it gets to the point where it's just like, okay, we're using time, but we're not, seeing, we're not seeing any advantages here at this moment yet. And we might revisit this later on. Um, we've got a short and heavy bat. So that one I believe is 27 inches 
but it's 33 ounces. So it's shorter than your normal bat, uh, assuming high school, college kid. Sure. But it's heavier than your bat. Um, so, you know, we'd done like short bat work for a while um, just for barrel awareness. So obviously having a shorter bat, I have to be aware that the, the barrel is closer to my body. So when I'm releasing the barrel, I have to be aware of that. So it's just you're, you're, you're training barrel awareness, essentially at that of when I have a different length object, knowing where the barrel is in relationship to my body and when to turn that barrel to the ball. But we always said like, man, all the short bats always weigh so little. It feels like you're swinging like those stadium park bats and like it's such a weird feel to feel. Um, so Justin actually came up with the idea and contacted um, a company that we use to kind of do some of our bats that we just want to try new things and have them have them, you know, make a bat specifically for us that maybe isn't even on the market yet. Um, and he had that one and it came in. I was like, oh, what's this? And we were talking and we were working through some of the stuff. And I'm like, man, I actually kind of really like the feel of like even the weight distribution for the length, but also the length awareness. So I do a lot of check stuff with that short bat. Um which I feel like gives a really good feel again for connectivity um, and for obviously the D cell and rate of production because we're doing a check with it. Um, so the short and heavy I like. Um, and again, like as I go to kids, like I'll ask them, like we'll do the heavy bat, we'll do the short bat, we'll do a, a fungo with a split grip, we'll do, we've got like a narrow bat um, and we'll work them through every one of them. And I'm like, hey, which one of these makes it, which one of these do you like? Like which one of these feel like you're getting done what you need to get done, but you're also having to work a little bit to progress and I'll let them pick. And I'm not gonna be like, okay, we're only going to use this one. I'll be like, all right, if this one helps you, you know, feel like you're being able to progress what you're trying to do, like let's stick with this and let's work through it. So I think that becomes an important part too, is always going back to the athlete and saying, Hey, what helps you? Like my job is to help you not to tell you what to do. My job is to give you tools in your toolbox and then to keep assisting in keeping a narrative a narrative in your mind and giving you a voice and someone to voice thoughts to, or for me to throw a question out to you, like, Hey, what about this? Well, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. Well, what do you think about this? Um, so I definitely like, definitely like the different length and weight bats for different reasons. Um, and again, like I'll go away from stuff if I feel like kids are having a hard time um, adjusting to what we're trying to do to the point of, you know, this is going to be more detrimental than positive for them. Um, I know one of Justin's favorite drills, um, well, what was his favorite drill in our podcast and was, you know, probably a, a runner up in mine is angle toss. Um, so our angle, angle toss is, is going to be just like cross hip. So setting up the L screen basically in front of the athlete, uh, and throwing back across their front hip towards the outside corner. Um, and what we're looking at that is, again, we're looking for connectivity and we're looking for barrel awareness and release. So we're looking as the ball coming across their front hip for them to be able to keep themselves inside, essentially what the, what the ball would be coming across their body, but then still being able to turn the barrel so that we're not sliding the barrel and basically side spinning the ball the opposite way. So there we're going to typically target the opposite gap. So we're trying to go like if it's a right-handed hitter, we're throwing across their front hip, outside part of the plate. They're trying to target typically like the upper right-hand corner then of the cage. Um, so that's slight opposite field, but back of the cage um, so that they're still having to be able to turn the barrel at the right time. Because again, when we do 
inside work, you're going to get a lot of guys that just keep sliding and then they don't turn the barrel and they're basically just side spinning balls off their bat just to try to go the other way versus being able to stay inside long enough, but still having the, still having the wherewithal to be able to know when to turn the barrel so you can still direct a ball more in an outward fashion. So angle toss is definitely a staple. Um, I get a lot of kids that come in and ask like, Hey, cause I'm like, Hey, what do you need from me today? When they come in the cage, I'm like, what do you need today? Uh, you know, I really want to get back into some more of that angle toss because I feel like that really helped me feel like I was here. I'm like, all right, cool. Like, let's, let's get into that. You know, is there any other issues that you feel like you have today? There's times that we won't even do T work. You know, they'll come in and be like, man, I just like, look, can we start with some angle toss? And then, you know, let's talk from there. I'm like, all right, cool. So we'll go out and we'll start letting them feel where they need to feel there. And, you know, my, my guys for the most part at this point, because of having an open relationship with them, like not feeling like they're there to just hear what I have to say a lot of them take control of our sessions. Like they'll come in and be like, oh man, I'm, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm stuck here a little bit in my arms. You know, like I just, I just don't know why I'm stuck. Like I've kind of like trying to move through it. Like, you know, what, you know, be like, oh, well, let's, let's talk here a little bit. It looks like your, you know, posture, your posture loss here, whatever else it is there. So I'll get guys that come in and like just ask for, for angle toss or like I get kids that'll walk in and if I don't have the 3740 bat in my cage, like they'll walk over to our, our cubby of bats and they'll go grab it and bring it over the cage and they'll walk into the cage with like, Hey man, let's, let's roll here. I'm like, Oh, you like that big one, huh? And they're like, yeah, I like it. It makes me feel like I, makes me feel like I can really feel when to accelerate the bat versus losing it early. I'm like, all right, cool. Let's, let's rock it. And then the left, can I, can I use this? Can I use this on the, on a flip two today? I'm like, Hey, like, let's go for it. Like, you know, it's not going to hurt us to, to give this a rip. It already makes you feel good. Can you create the same feel when a ball's coming at you as we we're trying to create a feel on a tee or in a controlled situation? Um, running through some of the other drills, I know that we've talked about. Um, I I love I love the feet down drill, um, and I love the feet down drill. And I always I always say pelvis, pelvis, pelvis. Like the feet down drill is going to force the pelvis to have to be more controlled and a better mover. Because when the back, especially when the back foot can't release or fully release, your pelvis has to move well in a stable position. If my pelvis moves towards the plate, my heel is going to come off the ground higher in that position or my foot's going to roll out. <coughs> if my pelvis shifts towards the pitcher, my foot is going to want to rock in with my move. But for my pelvis to stay more in the center of my body, I can keep my back foot down and still be able to move through my pelvis. Now we have to be careful here, right? Like if I've got a guy that's got very little range of motion in his hips, foot down drill isn't going to benefit as much simply because they're going to feel like it's harder for them to get to a, through a turn and it might put them in a more compromising position in, in their rear knee. So if I've got a tighter mover, I'm typically going to stay away from that drill simply because the range of motion is going to make it tougher on the joint, on the knee. Um, but with more neutral and loose movers, like most of them are pretty good and we'll go slow at first to make sure that they feel comfortable moving, but feet down. I love just from a, a simple pelvic standpoint and stability. And it's wild. Like, man, at a high percentage, really high percentage, um, that if we're doing throw, if I'm, if I'm doing like even slightly above average velocity BP, if we go feet down in BP, like it's like barrel, 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 barrel. And we go back like, all right, let's go back to regular swing. And it's like barrel, miss hit, miss hit, barrel, miss hit, miss hit, barrel, miss hit. And then it's like, all right, let's go back feet down. It's like barrel, barrel, barrel. I'm like, listen, man, like you need to understand 
how important it is for your lower body to be able to be stable or really your pelvis to be able to be stable so the upper body can actually do what it needs to do and not feel like it's having to try to rebalance what the, the pelvis isn't being able to do. So I love the feet down drill from that standpoint. Number one, from the standpoint of, of being able to control the pelvis better, but understanding how much pelvic stability leads to upper body control or the ability to have better upper body control. Um, and then with the feet down, we'll do it like starting feet down. So basically launch position, just keeping feet down, rotating through. We'll do that same thing off of a flip. And then we'll do stride into feet down. So basically being able to take your stride and go right into feet down, which is now being able to have your pelvis moving forward in your advance and then being able to stabilize versus moving forward in your advance and then continuing to want to move forward um, as opposed to stabilizing. Um, so I like that a lot. Um, with tighter movers, because that's usually then the next thing of like pelvic work with tighter movers, I typically like doing like a split stance where the front foot is going to start uh, closer to the plate, the back foot, I'm, I'm typically going to be at least a foot farther back than the, the heel of the front foot. Um, sometimes a little bit more. So for like tighter movers, that tends to feel like a better pelvic stabilizer uh, for them just because of range of motion in the hip. And that way they can feel pelvic stabilization without feeling like they're having to torque out their knee a little bit too much. Um, so again, feet down is one of my favorite. It's been a, you know, a helper for a vast majority. So if I'm doing general talk, it's going to be like feet down helps the majority because most people are neutral to loose and have poor pelvic control. Um, split grip, obviously the, the check swings are huge. Um, and then drill wise, you know, kind of like normal, what other people would do, like, like drill wise to me is like high velocity. Like I'm going to throw hard. Let's see where we're at. Like, are we, are we being able to control our heart rate? Are we being able to control our tempo? Are we being able to control our time to impact? Are we panicking? Are we making bad decisions? Um, and then go back and talk. Like, I'm not going to just sit and beat you up the whole time, but I need, I need the athlete to be aware of kind of where they are in their progress. And instead of me telling them whether they're good or bad or not doing well or not doing well, they know when we go to a higher velocity, they're not, I'm not going to have to tell them whether they're squaring the ball up or not, or whether they feel calm or if they feel excited or if they feel rushed or, you know, they're in control or out of control. Like they're going to know. And we'll, I'll ask them like, Hey, how'd you feel that round? Ah, oh, man, I just, I feel like I was, panicking and I was losing my I was losing my hands because I was trying to turn so fast all right all right so let's do a reset round I'm gonna go back out I'm gonna do another high below round try to battle to the point where you don't feel like you're trying to turn so fast that you can't control the rest or the end of your swing and then we'll go to high below I'm like listen that's your only goal if you can make that feel right you're gonna win this round um so high below which is a drill is a drill to me high below is a drill um, cause I'm going above game speed at that point. Like high velo to me is above game speed just to see where we're breaking down and how they feel. Um, you know, breaking ball rounds are drill rounds to me. Like we're going to throw breaking balls. Like, are you, are you chasing this ball down? Like as a, as a pitcher, as a former pitcher as well, like I never saw myself as a strikeout pitcher. That didn't mean I didn't try to strike guys out, but like my job as a pitcher was to get outs. And I think it's important for hitters to understand this too. Like my job as a pitcher is to get outs, not to throw strikes. Like everybody's like, oh, your job is to throw strikes. No, it's not. My job is to get outs. If I throw every ball two inches off the plate and you keep swinging at and getting out, I'm never going to throw a strike this game and I'm going to win. Sick. Like I don't need to throw strikes to be a good pitcher. I need to get outs. And when I was throwing a breaking pitch, 
it wasn't to get you to swing and miss, which is what a lot of guys think is trying to happen from a pitching standpoint and a hitting standpoint. It's not. I wanted you to hit something weak so the at-bat could be over because then I win. I got my out, you know. And so, like, with breaking balls, with a lot of times I, t- I tell kids, I said, what do you think a pitcher is trying to do with a breaking ball? Their first thought is, well, he's trying to get me a swing and miss. Okay. Normal mindset because most pitchers are, you know, telling themselves they're supposed to strike everybody out. And I said, okay, if they're not getting a strikeout, what do you think, what do you think the next, next best result is for the pitcher? Well, that I hit a weak ground ball. I said, okay. So what are we going to try not to do then as a hitter? We're going to try not to swing and miss, and we're going to try not to hit a ground ball. That doesn't mean we're trying to hit moonshots here. That means that I'm going to try not to chase this ball down. And that goes back to posture again. Like if I'm, if I'm seeing a pitch up and then as the ball goes down, I have to drop my posture to try to reach down to it. That means I'm chasing constantly down to the ball. There is a very high likelihood I'm going to hit that ball on the ground and I'm not going to hit it on the ground firm. So people need to understand the difference, right? If I'm hitting hard ground balls, I still have a pretty high success rate of getting a hit. If I'm hitting slower speed ground balls, I'm going to be out the majority of the time, period. So in that situation, I'm like, hey, as we're doing breaking ball drill rounds, it's I want you to under posture this pitch. Meaning like if this ball is at this pitch height, I'm going to try to get my posture below it and let the ball fall to my posture so I can work on a still minimal line slightly uphill where I'm not trying to get exaggerated uphill, a slight line back uphill but I'm already waiting for the ball to come to me because I read early whether the pitcher changes delivery or I read the spin or I read the hump of the pitch or I read whatever the pitcher, whatever the hitter sees. But are you being able to make those decisions so we can get these balls back over the infield? And I always stress that over the infield. That's all we're shooting for. I'm not shooting for bombs here on anything. I'm not shooting for home runs ever. Like if they happen, that's great. We're trying to get balls in their minds over the infield, which is classification line drive. Like we're, we're trying to give ourselves the best chance to eliminate everybody in the infield from being able to stop us from being successful. And if we do that, we have a really high chance of being successful. So that to me is a drill. Can we keep this ball from being on the ground? Can we keep it from being at the top of the cage? Can we get just to the point where we know that this ball is arm height over an infielder's head? Like let's shoot for that line. How consistently can we be there? And then if I touch just a little bit below center, well, that ball is now a little bit more in the gap. If I'm a little bit above, hopefully I'm hard enough ground ball through the infield to give myself a chance. So to me, that's drill work too of like, we're just going to have rounds. Or I'm gonna, the kids come in some days and like, man, I just need curveballs. I'm like, sick, let's go. Like, you feel like you're ready to go? Cool. Like, I'll back up and I'll throw them 140 breaking balls in a 30-minute session. Be like, all right, man, you just saw more breaking balls than you've probably seen in the last year and a half in 30 minutes. Like, if that's what you need, like, that's what I'm here for. Like, I'll sit and do that for you. I'm not going to control the session. I'm going to let you do it. So, like, from a drill standpoint, those are probably – the main go-tos of what I'll do on more of a daily basis because they all have different effects, whether they're game effects or whether they're changing how the body delivers the swing in a game. I love that. And man, it's, it's, I think the listeners are going to have to go back through and, and listen two or three times to really get everything that you've brought today, just because it's, it, you've, you've given us everything we could have asked for and more. And so with that, I, I want to say thank you. Uh, Travis, man, I, I appreciate your time, appreciate your friendship, appreciate you helping me get better today, along with you know, a couple thousand listeners. And so uh, I, I just, again, thank you for being on the show and, and looking forward to uh, getting guys in contact with you. I'll link that in the show notes, uh, put your email and your Twitter account and uh, anything else that you'd like to tell them before you go. Yeah, I just I appreciate you being on and, and doing what you're doing, you know, for the baseball community, you do a really good job of having really good 
variant topics, you know, where it's everything from gameplay to strategies to mental to physical to, you know, it's, it's such a, such a benefit to everybody in the community to be able to have a resource, you know, to help us all get better. Like I've, you know, even having done this for, you know, 16 to 17 years, like I'm constantly seeking to learn more. There's so many smart people out there. There's so many smart people to take advantage of and, and by you facilitating it with your podcast, you know, it allows a lot of people to connect and be able to give back to, you know, even as a parent to their own kid when they can or coaches to, you know, better help their game planning and how they're interacting with their kids. And, and for other people like me to be able to like take tidbits from people around the country that I wouldn't be able to communicate on a daily basis with, you know, and sit in my vehicle and just sit and listen to like, all right, what are people talking about? Like, how are they navigating things that, you know, maybe I can navigate better. So thank you for, for what you do for our baseball community and um, definitely going to have to turn the, turn the tables. And next time I get to be the silent, the silent one. And I want to hear kind of how you're navigating through, you know, your game planning and, and what you do on a daily basis to, to continue to develop your kids and, and yourself. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.